the Book of Judges, a dark time in Israel's history, a pattern of failure, failure to follow God's law, failure to train up the next generation, failure to remember and celebrate God's faithfulness. We may be tempted to see the judges as heroes of the faith. However, the only hero of this story is God himself. The people of God chose the pleasures of sin over the promises of God. And the story of Judges is our story as well. In a desperately wicked and fallen world, the book of Judges reveals both the disgrace of sin and the deliverance only God can provide. Well, last week we read through uh, one of the most popular stories in the book of Judges, the days of Gideon. And, and I got to tell you, I don't blame people for Gideon to be one of the most famous and one of their favorite judges. I mean, who, who can fault them for loving a story where God chooses a man who describes himself as the weakest member of the weakest family of the weakest tribe in a defeated land, and God chose that guy to do a work. I mean, if there's any person who wonders if God can use them, if there's anyone who fears that they've messed up their life too much for God to pursue them, for God to love them, for God to use them, I mean, you have to love the story of Gideon. And it's not just that. I mean, the story gets better that God chose the weakest guy in the weakest family, the weakest clan in a defeated land, and the way that he did that victory, the way that he won that battle, the way that he orchestrated everything, where Gideon amassed 32,000 people. But God whittled him down to 300 in a miraculous way. 22,000 men were dismissed because they were afraid. 9,700 men were dismissed because they drank water the wrong way. And Gideon was left, the weakest man of the weakest family, the weakest tribe in a defeated land, was left with 300 men. And if you remember, those 300 men were more than likely worried themselves. Because the text tells us that Gideon had to retain them. He had to keep them. He had to force them to stay. Make no mistake. I mean, these guys were afraid. And they were outnumbered 10,000 to 1. 10,000 to 1 odds. And God used that team to win the battle. If you have your Bibles, join me in the book of Judges, chapter 7. I want to remind you How Judges 7 ended, after God whittled away 32,000 men down to 300, here's how he did it. Judges chapter 7, starting in verse 16, he said this. This is what the text says. He, meaning uh, Gideon, divided the 300 men into three companies 
and he put trumpets and empty pitchers into the hands of all of them with torches inside the pitchers. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I and all who are with me blow the trumpet, then you will also blow the trumpets all around the camp and say for the Lord and for Gideon. Verse 19, so Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just posted the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the pitchers that were in their hands. And when the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, they held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing and cried, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Each stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran crying out as they fled. Verse 22, when they blew 300 trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one against another, even throughout the whole army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah, toward Zerah, as far as the edge of Albaholah by Taboth. The men of Israel were summoned from Naphtali and Asher and all Manasseh, and they pursued Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country to Ephraim, saying, Come down against Midian and take the waters before them as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. And all the men of Ephraim were summoned, and they took the waters as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. They captured the two leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, and they killed Oreb at the Rock of Oreb. And they killed Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. That's when you know it was an awesome battle when they named the place it happened because of it. While they pursued Midian and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to, get to Gideon from across the Jordan. I mean, I love back in verse 22 how it, where it described the power of God when they blew 300 trumpets. The Lord, it says, set the sword of one against another. I mean, these 300 men didn't even have to fight. They had a torch in one hand, a trumpet in the other. I mean, how'd they fight? That phrase, that God set the sword against another in the Hebrew, that means that God moved in such a way that the Midianites fought against the Midianites. God confused them. God did something. God did his thing. And the Midianite army attacked the Midianite army. And the people of God just sat back and watched it happen. Man, I wish that's how the days of Gideon ended. I love the story where God takes the weakest man and the weakest family and the weakest tribe in a defeated land and does a miraculous work and they win the battle and we have this image in our head that maybe after this, maybe the the book of Judges ends and we go in a whole new direction. They're holding hands, singing kumbaya and they're going down and they're finally the reflection of God that God desires them to be. But unfortunately, the days of Gideon continue. The story of Gideon doesn't end in chapter 7. It ends in chapter 8. And I want to warn you, it doesn't end well. So what happened? How does after two chapters of God using the weakest man and the weakest family and the weakest tribe in a defeated land and doing all that miraculous work, how does it not end well? Well, so often after a little spiritual victory in our own lives, we tend to let it go to our heads and we allow it to undermine our soul. That was the case for Gideon. 
And I believe chapter 8 is in here because I think it's also a warning for you and for me. A little victory, spiritual or otherwise, so often can go to our heads and undermine our souls. My hope and prayer is that your life and mine does not resemble the days of Gideon. Join me, if you will, Judges chapter 8. If you're not in there already, Judges chapter 8, start in verse 1. They already won. The men of Ephraim defeated the, the leaders of the Midianite army. Verse, chapter 8, verse 1. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this thing you have done to us, not calling us when, we, when you went to fight against the Midianites? And they contended with him vigorously. I got to tell you, like I just started this, it's like, man, isn't that how the people of God work? You just had this tremendous victory. I mean, God just used the weakest guy, the weakest family, the weakest tribe in a defeated land. And he showed and he gave them deliverance and showed them mercy for their idolatry. I mean, there should be this euphoric peace in the kingdom. And already people are complaining. Next day, the celebration didn't even finish. The Ephraimites were all upset because Gideon didn't call them early on. Gideon called them near the end. It says, they contended with him vigorously. That's Bible talk, for they argued bitterly. They brought serious legal challenge to Gideon. In other words, they were fighting mad. They were furious. It makes you wonder, man, what are they so upset about? You ever hear the term spoils of war? See, when you're part of a victory, there's oftentimes great riches that come with it. The Ephraimites feel like they missed out. Hey, we didn't get some of, we didn't get our share of the spoils. You left us out of the major battle. Forget the fact that they probably would have been sent home anyway. They would have been part of the 32,000. And 31,700 of them went home. But I love Gideon's response. Verse 2, Gideon said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? God has given the leaders of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb into your hands. What was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger towards him subsided when he said that. Here's what he said. Basically, hey, the spoils that you got by defeating the Midianite leaders far outnumbers the spoils I got from the battle. Hey, you got more money than me. You got more praise than me. Let's all be friends. And they said, oh, okay. Cool. Thanks. You begin to read Gideon, or you begin to think of Gideon after chapter 8, verse 1. It's like, wow, Gideon, that was really, really mature of him, don't you think? I mean, he just led, God used him to lead the people into victory. And these people started busting his chops on the first day. I mean, you'd think Gideon would just come up and say, hey, I'm following God's direction. God didn't call you. He called me. He could have said all this stuff, but he didn't. He just came back, 
calmly, maturely responded. It almost sounds biblical. As a reminder, Proverbs 15, King Solomon, generations later would say this, a gentle answer turns away wrath. A harsh word stirs up anger. How about the next chapter, Proverbs 16, says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit, then he captures a city. I mean, if we're, as we're reading this, we begin to wonder, maybe Gideon is turning into that leader that we, that we hope he would, that God desired him to be. But then we keep reading. Verse 4 of chapter 8. Then Gideon and 300 men who were with him came to the Jordan and crossed over weary yet pursuing. And he said to the men of Sukkoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who are following me, for they are weary and pursuing Zeba and Zumanon. The kings of Midian, the leaders of Sukkoth said, Are the kings of Zeba and Zumanon already in your hands that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon's chasing the kings of Midian. His people are hungry. His people are tired. They go into this city, the city that's most likely filled with people of God, one of the tribes of Israel. Gideon goes in and says, hey, can you help my boys out? They're hungry. And the people of Sukkoth, this tribe of Israel, begins to weigh their options. Gideon, you're, you're not very many people. You're fighting this this kingdom of Midianites that outnumber you 10,000 to one. If you lose, then we're going to be siding with the loser and Midianites are going to come after us. I mean, the men of Sukkoth are worried. The men of Sukkoth are concerned. The men of Sukkoth are afraid. And if there's anyone who should have understood that, it would be Gideon, right? I mean, there's an entire chapter of Gideon being afraid. If anyone could understand, it would be Gideon. But look at Gideon's response. Verse 7, Gideon says, All right, then when the Lord has given Zeba and Zumanah into my hand, then I will thrash your bodies with the thorns of the wilderness and the briars. And you're thinking, oh, time out. What happened to slow to wrath? What happened to a gentle answer turns away wrath? He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. Whoa, Gideon, like, relax. Just so you know, that term thrash is actually used to describe what someone does when they prepare wheat. When someone prepares wheat, they beat it until the rough husk is loosened, and then they rip the husk from the flesh of the wheat. And that's what Gideon is promising to do to these people. He will come and tear their skin away from their bodies by beating them with thorns and thistles. Like Gideon just, I mean, he went from zero to 160 like this. With his brothers, the people of God. Fine, you don't want to give me food? When I come back here, I'm going to rip skin from your body using a thorn and a thistle. We can think, well, maybe he's just hangry. Needs a nap. You know, Brian, give Gideon some space. Look at verse 8. He went up from there to Penuel and spoke similarly to them. And the men of Penuel answered him, just as the men of Sukkoth had answered, hey, 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 hey. Once you win, we're happy to help you out. If you lose, that puts us on the line with the Midianites. 
They're worried. They're concerned. Again, if anyone would have mercy and grace to fear, that would be Gideon. Gideon could have said, hey, hey, I felt the same way. But I placed an offering out. And the presence of God consumed it. I put a fleece out. God did it. I put a fleece out again and God did it. I had 30, I mean, he could have gone through the whole thing. Listen, God's got this. But he doesn't. Look what he says in verse 9. So he spoke also to the men of Penuel, saying, when I return safely, I will tear down this tower. Fine, you don't want to help us out? You're going to get it too. The term tear down means to pulverize, demolish, form into rubble or, rubble or mulch. Remember what Gideon did to the idols of Baal and Asherah last week? That's what he's promising to do to their town. Hey, you know what I can do. I tore down these idols. What I did to the idols and the idolaters, I'm going to do to you, the people of God. Then we hope, well, okay, Brian, maybe Gideon's just kind of caught up in this. After he wins the battle, things will calm down. Maybe Gideon's one of those guys, his bark's worse than his bite, right? So we continue. Now Ziba and Zumana were in Kakor. Their armies with them, about 15,000 men, all were left of the entire army of the sons of the east. For the fallen were 120,000 swordsmen. Gideon went up by way of those who lived in tents on the east of Nobah and Jogbaha and attacked the camp when the camp was unsuspecting. When Ziba and Zomana fled, he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zomana, and routed the whole army. Verse 13. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned for the battle by the ancient ascent of Herez, and he captured a youth from Sukkoth and questioned him. Then the youth wrote down for him the princes of Sukkoth and its elders, 77 men. He came to the men of Sukkoth and said, Behold, Ziba and Zumana, concerning whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zumana already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are weary? Gideon says, You remember that? How you taunted me? He took the elders of the city and the thorns of the wilderness and the briars, and he disciplined the men of Sukkoth with them. So after the victory, Gideon did not calm down. After the victory, he was still upset. He was still on fire. And look at how we did it. Lest you think, I want to make sure you understand, that, well, maybe this was righteous, Brian. I mean, Gideon was called by God, and these people did not side with Gideon and God. And if you're not for God, then you're against God. Maybe they got what they deserved. Let me help you, let me describe for you what Gideon did. See, I'm going to contend to you, this is not about God. This is about Gideon. The people didn't give him the respect that he thought he deserved. People didn't give him the requests that he had asked for. Look again, verse 14. After Gideon won the battle, he came back to the city it says, and he captured a youth, a term captured, he seized, he took, he kidnapped one of the tribe of Dan, a member of the people of God, and forced him to give the names of the leaders of the people. He kidnapped a kid, 
said, give me all the names of the leaders. And then he wrote down all the, all the names of the leaders. And you might think, well, Brian, I mean, that's how it's done, right? There's one other time in history that's done. Put your thumb in Judges 9. Let's flip over to Judges chapter 1. God used this, or the people used this same strategy early on and are coming in and, and trying to fight and gain control of the promised land. Verse 22, Judges 1:22. Likewise, the house of Joseph went up against Bethel. The Lord was with them. The house of Joseph spied out Bethel. The spy saw a man coming out of the city and said, please show us entrance to the city and we will treat you kindly. So he showed them the entrance to the city. They struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all of his family go free. I mean, he's using the same strategies and the same plans that they used to defeat idolaters and the enemies of God against the people of God. He captures a kid. He kidnaps a kid, promises, I'm a, I'll save you. Ramses is after these guys. It goes on. After he finds all 77 of these men, he took the elders of the city, I'm in verse 16, and the thorns of the wilderness and briars, and he disciplined the men of Sukkoth with them. A term discipline, by the way, means something different in, in the Bible than our English understanding and our cultural understanding. The word in the Hebrew means to make someone aware of something, to help them understand something. A term discipline. Hey, I'm going to take these briars and I'm going to beat the truth into you. What truth do you think Gideon was helping them understand? Memorizing Psalms? Helping them memorize, understand the Torah? No, no, no. Gideon is there. I'm called by God. I gave you a directive and you didn't respond accordingly. This is not about God. This is about Gideon. Continues, verse 17. After he beat these guys, skinned them alive, he tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. He didn't just tear down the tower. He annihilated the, all the men in that city. I remember early on in my parenting how challenging how challenging it was to discipline my kids. I learned early on, or I learned too late, I should say, there's a difference between punishment and discipline. Do you know the difference? There's a difference between punishment and discipline. Punishment is what I deliver because I didn't get my way. Discipline is what I give because God didn't get his way. There's a very big difference. Punishment is what I dole out because I didn't get what I wanted. Discipline is what I'm empowered to give because God didn't get what he wanted. Interesting, is, interesting thing is when I tried to give discipline with the intentionality to reflect the truth and character of God, I was much more controlled my actions were more measured and merciful. 
So I think as parents, as people, and we seek to give discipline, aligning people and bringing them to the throne of mercy and grace, the way we do it is much different. And we dole out punishment for not getting our way. First thing we see in Gideon, we see a change from humility to tyranny. Let's keep going. Gideon's not done yet. Look at verse 18. After he terrorizes these two cities, then he said to Ziba and Zomana, right, the two kings of Midian, what kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? And they said, they were like you, each one resembling the son of a king. He said, they were my brothers and sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if only you would let them live, I would not kill you. Let's hit pause for a minute. He just finished killing an entire city of his brothers because they didn't give his men any bread. And he's ready to let the Midianite kings live. I mean, do you start to see like Gideon's coming apart here? I mean, his rationale, his thinking, his processing. Verse 20, so he let Jether, his firstborn, he said to him, rise and kill them. But the youth right? That term youth, at best, this kid's 13. At best. More likely younger. The youth did not draw a sword for he was afraid because he was still a youth. Makes most people think he was much younger than 13. Then Ziba and Zumanal said, rise up yourself and fall on us for the man so is his strength. They start taunting Gideon. What, you're not man enough to do this, do this yourself, Gideon? So Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zumanah, took the crescent ornaments which were on their camels' necks. Once again, out of anger, Gideon kills. What began as a great story where we saw God use the weakest man of the weakest family from the weakest tribe in a defeated land has gone violently wrong. It's gone from humility to tyranny. What happened? Do you ever wonder what, what happens to people who experience the grace and mercy of God, but then turn around and fail to share it with others? Do you ever wonder what causes people to do that? I want you to know it's not just Gideon. Look what Jesus taught. Matthew chapter 6, verse 14. said, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Seems like there's an issue with the people of God craving the forgiveness of God, but not wanting to offer forgiveness themselves. Let's put our thumbs in Judges and let's flip over to the New Testament. Again, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. I want to show you a story Jesus told. Matthew, chapter 18. Starting in verse 21. 
Matthew 18, 21 says this, Then Peter came and said to him, meaning Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Verse 23, For this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents, that's about $6,700,000,000 in our funds today, before inflation. Right? He had begun to settle them. One who owed him $6,700,000,000 was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay that debt, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and his children and all that he had in repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. And the Lord, that slave, felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Again, $6,700,000,000. Verse 28, But then that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a 100 denarii, about $11,000, and seized him, began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground, began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him into prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved, came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave? in the same way that I have mercy on you. And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed to him. Jesus said, my heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. What happened to Gideon? Most believe Gideon forgot who he was before God and took credit for who he became after God. Most people believe Gideon forgot that he was the weakest of a weakest of a weakest of a defeated and began to see himself as the authority of God in the lives of people. I want to ask you, do you think we could fall into this too? Instead of remembering how we were dead in our trespasses and sins before God, we instead look down on those who are still lost in their sins as if we accomplished something on our own instead of being rescued by God ourselves. As a church, it's easy to look around and boast about all that we've achieved and forget. Not by our might, not by our power, but by the Spirit of the Lord is why we have what we have. I think that's the heart between, behind what Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 1. I shared this for you before. I want to share it with you again. He says, For consider your calling, brethren. There are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. 
the base things of the world and to despise God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. So can I ask you, are you more known for your humility or for your tyranny? As a parent, as a grandparent, are you more known for your grace and mercy or for your punishment as a church? Are we more known for our humility in reflecting God's glory or for tyranny, demanding our way and the world's respect? I guess I'm asking, are we more like Gideon or more like God? I'd like to say that's the end, but there's still one more lesson to be learned of Gideon's life. Goes on, verse 22. After all that, verse 22, then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, both you and your son, also your son's son, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. Let's stop there. They said, Gideon, you rule over us. That term rule, have dominion, reign over us. And my first question is, really? You want that guy reigning over you, ruling over you instead of God? Like he just skinned one town alive. He killed all the men in another town because they didn't give him any food. I mean, Gideon's all over the place. They're like, hey, rule over us. Why? Because Gideon, you gave us victory over the enemies. Completely forgetting this wasn't Gideon at all. I want to remind you, God warned Gideon about this. Judges chapter 7. The Lord said to Gideon, I'm in verse 2, Judges 7, 2. The Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. For Israel would become boastful, saying, my own power has delivered me. God warned Gideon, you guys are going to take credit for this. So God whittles them down to 300 people. They defeat a land with jars and torches and trumpets. And they still take credit for it. Gideon, you did it. Verse 23, but Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. And again, you're like, oh, great job, Gideon. Gold star, good work. Gideon says, no, God is going to have dominion over you. God's going to rule over you. And all of a sudden, we start hearing this piety from Gideon, hey, I'm not in charge. I'm just an instrument of God. God is your leader. But once again, Gideon doesn't stay there, and we see a slide from piety, piety to idolatry. Look at verse 24. See, Gideon says, I don't want to be your king. God is your king, but Gideon starts acting like a king. Look at verse 24. Yet... Never a good word to begin. Gideon says, no, no, no. I'm just a humble servant. God's your king. But since you're saying that, I would request of you that each of you give me an earring from his spoil. Each of you give me a piece of jewelry that you took from this battle. 
Verse 25, they said, we will surely give them. So they spread out a garment and every one of them threw an earring there from his spoil. And the weight of the shekel, or the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, roughly 50 pounds. Besides, not including the crescent ornaments and the pendants of the purple robes, which are in the king's Midianite, and besides the neck bands that were on their camel's necks. Gideon made it into an ephod and placed it in his city, Ophrah. Now, if you're a student of Old Testament history, this should be concerning you, right? Because there's another time after the people had this immense victory and they had spoils as a result. And then they all pulled some of their resources into one pot. You remember that? Put your thumb in Judges. Let's flip over to the left a few books to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. Look what happens. Exodus 32, starting in verse 1. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, when things weren't happening in their time, in their timeline, when God wasn't acting the way they wanted and Moses wasn't responsible to all their demands, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Hey, God's not talking to us like we want him to. Aaron said to them, tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. Hey, bring your earrings All the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from his hand, fashioned it with a graving tool, made it into a molten calf. They said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and he made a proclamation. It said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Sounds reminiscent, eerily similar of what Gideon is doing here. Give me earrings from your spoils. We're going to make an ephod. An ephod, just so you know, it's a cloak traditionally worn by the high priest of God as a means of determining God's will and being the voice of God for his people. Gideon claimed he didn't want to be their king, but instead, under the veil of spirituality, chose to act like their king built this 50-pound-plus cloak, put it in his city, and they used it to determine God's will for their lives. Gideon claimed that role for himself. No, 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 I don't want to be your king. God's going to be your king. Oh, but look at that. I'm the voice of God. I'll direct you. From piety to idolatry. Look at the result. As a result, all of Israel played the harlot with it there. So it became a snare, a trap, a lure to Gideon and his entire household. What began as a movement of God to free people from the curse of idolatry ended with Gideon leading them right back into it. What began as a story for the ages has become a warning for our lives today. Be careful, church. 
Be careful that you don't take credit for the power of God in your life and as a result end up in opposition to God in your life. Be careful, church, you don't move from humility to tyranny. Be careful that you don't move from piety to idolatry. If you don't want to follow the path of Gideon in your life, your home and your church, listen to the encouragement of the Apostle Paul, what he said. So, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You want to protect yourself from having the end of your story be like Gideon's. Paul says you got to keep Jesus at the center. Not taking credit for what you've achieved, but remembering where Jesus saved you from. Two questions I want to ask you while Riley begins to pray and or play. You can pray as well, Riley, if you like. <laughs> Number one, where do you need to reflect more humility and less tyranny in your life? Where do you need to reflect more humility in your life and less tyranny? More mercy, less demands, more grace, fewer expectations. In your life, where do you need to reflect more humility and less tyranny? I was talking to someone this week who used this phrase. I'm not sure how completely accurate it is, but he says, the church is no more for what it's against than what it's for. I wonder if that can be true in some of our lives. Question number two. What are you doing in the name of God that may put you against the plans of God? Man, we're so good at that, aren't we? What are you doing under the cloak of piety that places you in opposition to the plans of God? What are you claiming is God's will that you doubt really is God's will? It's just yours. Where do you need to reflect more humility and less tyranny in your life? What are you doing in the name of God that may actually put you against the plans of God? We're going to go into communion in a few moments. I want to ask you to take a moment and reflect on those questions with the Lord. See, I believe Judges chapter 8 is only given to us as a description of Gideon's life but as a warning for ours. May you be known for humility over tyranny, for piety over idolatry. And may God continue to shape your life and mine. Take a moment and pray. And the worship team will lead us into worship in a moment.